from the National Society of Genetic Counselors, this is the NSGC podcast series. Exploring stories of leading voices and best practices in genetic counseling. Welcome to the NSGC podcast series. I'm your host, Naomi Wagner. I'm here with podcast subcommittee member, Ryan Kuehl. Hi, Naomi. On today's episode, Ryan will be speaking with two genetic counselors who have done work with NSGC's Access and Service Delivery Committee, or ASD Committee. This committee is responsible for monitoring, making recommendations, and addressing issues related to increasing access to genetic counselors. Specific issues of focus include service delivery models, workforce, efficiency, coverage and reimbursement, state licensure, and coding and credentialing. Yes, it was great to sit down and speak with these genetic counselors. I spoke with Emily Booth and Brian Rays. Emily is a pediatric genetic counselor at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, whose work has focused on patient access to genetic services through her efforts to spread telehealth across the state of Mississippi to increase genetics knowledge among primary care providers in the state and in her work on NSGC's Access and Service Delivery Committee. And Brian is a remote genetic counselor with UT Southwestern, and he manages the program's genetic counseling assistant team. We really appreciated that they were willing to take a deep dive on access and service delivery topics for this podcast episode. I have to admit, like many genetic counselors, I'm a big proponent of telehealth and telegenetics, but I also groan every time I have to think about multi-state licensure or billing. However, that's part of why we wanted to bring you today's episode. We cannot increase equity in genetic services if we shy away from topics like licensure, billing, and credentialing. I believe that many genetic counselors around the country find themselves faced with similar questions about implementing alternative service delivery models and overcoming barriers surrounding them. This topic is so important because I believe that almost everyone in the membership probably interacts with these topics, especially since the COVID-19 pandemic began. Yeah, for sure. This is quite timely. So we're really excited to share this conversation with you today as our speakers share stories of what has worked for them personally and also comment on larger initiatives within the field. They also speak about research findings. Yeah, I was able to start off our conversation by asking Emily about a journal of genetic counseling article that she contributed to. The article is titled Genetic Counseling Service Delivery Models, a study of genetic counselors' interests needs, and barriers to implementation. So you'll hear more about the article in this episode, but broadly, this article shares responses from a 2017 survey that was distributed to NSGC members regarding the use of service delivery models. 517 responses were analyzed, and the article summarizes some key quantitative and especially qualitative findings. One important finding is that more than half of the respondents felt that their current service delivery model was inadequate to address patient needs in their area. So I can imagine that there's many of you listening who might be in that circumstance and might be curious to learn more about varied service delivery models. Or as we know, many genetic counselors shifted their service delivery due to COVID-19 pandemic and are trying to figure out what worked, what didn't, and what changes they may try to carry forward beyond the pandemic. So without further ado, over to Ryan, Emily, and Brian. Thank you so much, Brian and Emily, for both being here to discuss this paper and also your personal experiences with service delivery models. Thanks for having us. Happy to be here. Wonderful. So before we sort of jump into all of the nitty gritty of the paper, Emily, I'd like to just ask you, how did this data set come to be and how did this study design promote itself to you? 
Sure. And just as we get started today, I am employed by a state institution, but anything that I share today or my opinions, my opinions alone, and I'm not speaking for my institution or my employer. And this is kind of a testament to volunteering for a committee because I came in kind of midway, but really NSGC had a service delivery task force that they put together that did an original survey in 2010 on kind of what is a snapshot on service delivery across genetic counselors. And they published that in 2013. And then it was decided, you know, we need to we need to update this. Let's let's get a new snapshot. So the updated survey was given in 2017, and then we've ended up publishing results in 2020. So I kind of came in midway through the the update. And as part of the update, they actually asked some open-ended questions, really trying to ask genetic counselors to share more about the implementation or the barriers that come up with service delivery. And this particular paper was intended to focus on those open-ended responses. Right. So it seems like after reading the paper that there are these three overarching main themes, right? Surrounding expanding access to genetic counseling services, reimbursement for those services, and a lack of support at administration and institutional levels. Were these sort of the themes that you were expecting to find when you were gathering the data from this update? No, not necessarily. I feel like it's really interesting, you know, if you've been involved in service delivery for any amount of time, especially, you know, a lot of folks have kind of dipped their toes into telehealth, either pre-COVID or post-COVID. You think of things like technology issues or barriers or the cost of equipment and things like that. And it was interesting to me to see these responses because we've kind of shifted. Now, those things were definitely mentioned by some people, but it seems that we've really shifted from those nitty gritty, how do we do this, to really into the complexities of how do we run and maintain a successful self-sustaining clinic. And so that kind of brought in those newer, more prominent themes of the billing, reimbursement, the touches into licensure and that type of stuff. It's very interesting to me to watch the the maturation of our field as it kind of goes with service delivery. You know, we're kind of pushing into the more complex issues. Right. I feel that a lot of the barriers that were identified by the respondents had to do with those, like you're saying, further ideas of what it takes to expand access. Were there any barriers that the respondents identified that surprised you or that you hadn't known about previously? The short answer is really no. Honestly, I hope folks who read the article are reassured because over and over again, you know, we saw things that made me reassured because folks were dealing with the same things that I am. We saw things like trying to help deal with transportation issues or decrease wait times. Everybody's focused on care for the patients. Everybody's dealing with understaffing. Everybody's dealing with the institutions not supporting or I don't have any support staff, things like that. So I wouldn't say for me that there was anything that's just out there surprising. In some ways, you know, that nice to hear, relieving to hear, you know, other folks are having the same issues that I am. Right. This like collective experience that a lot of genetic counselors are having. Yeah, certainly. Were there any barriers that you found striking among the, the commonality that the respondents had? I was actually really surprised to see kind of coming to the forefront, the issue of being very tied or tethered to physicians, because that is something I've dealt with personally in working in pediatrics, but that's something that is getting a larger voice as folks are realizing and PSS data is supporting wait times are different when 
genetic counselor availability is tied to another provider's availability versus kind of pushing the envelope toward top of scope of practice and more autonomy for genetic counselors. There are other folks out there having that conversation and it's really gaining traction. What do you think the expanding scope of practice or autonomy for genetic counselors might look like in the future as it pertains to service delivery models? You know, it's hard to say. I don't, I don't think there's a cookie cutter answer. You know, it's not just a, here's the toolkit, ABC. It's a smooth path for everybody. I think that looks different for everybody, you know, and I think a lot of it comes back to, we have to talk about things like licensure. We have to talk about things like credentialing. We have to talk about the big looming federal bill you know, recognition as a provider. And I think a lot of this is like, we're sitting here right in the middle of the maturation of our field. You know, it's, we're still fairly young of a profession and we're watching that happen. And I like to talk about when it will happen, not if it will happen, but you know, there's lots of impacts that that can and will have on the trickle down. And ultimately I always like to remember and remind folks that it all comes back to patients and it all comes back to individual access to genetic services, whatever that looks like. I think if that remains our goal, then we're all on the same page. Brian, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this finding and this thought in the paper that expanding genetic counseling autonomy might expand access to genetic counseling services. How do you see that happening in the future? Worth noting, as we're having these conversations today, I am a state employee, but my views and everything expressed here are my opinions and my opinions alone and don't reflect the opinions of my employer. I love this topic because I think for many of us, when we first started exploring, we might have focused a little bit more on the superficial side of telehealth or service delivery models. I remember being so obsessed with a genetic counselor who I met that had their company's logo behind them when they were working from home and just how it elevated the experience of professionalism and just loving that. But then as we're talking about this paper, we're really talking about things that are so much more critical to the underlying field of genetic counseling as we as we move forward. And so what we're really talking about is solidifying what the definition is of genetic counseling to medicine and our relationship with billing. And so as we talk about the relationships between physicians and genetic counselors, independent billing or billing together, that's really what the next step has to be. And so we know NSGC worked on this a lot this year and is continuing to do so in support of the federal bill. But I think what we're going to see in the future is we also need to be thinking about APPs and how the relationship between advanced practice providers and GCs can also be integrated because we always talk about physicians, but we don't talk enough about how, particularly with telemedicine, we'll see APPs in the mix even more. So I don't have answers, but I do think that one of the future directions is to really look at how we can work with other mid-level providers who are having similar challenges that we have had in the past to find some resolutions. Emily, do you feel that that is one of the take-home messages of this article, that expanding the autonomy of genetic counseling services and genetic counselors, maybe in accordance with, like Brian is saying, with other mid-level providers to expand access to genetic services? Do you feel that that was captured well in the responses? I do. And, and like I said, I feel like that piece is gaining traction. I think if I really look at, you know, overall take-home message from the article, I would kind of even 
back up a little bit from there and kind of come back to the statement I had about, you know, that reassurance. And hopefully there's some camaraderie around you're all dealing with the same things and, you know, they've struggled with it. That's what I'm struggling with. We're all kind of having that unified voice. And I think to Brian's point, he brings up advanced practice providers as a kind of a specific example for something future. I think for this article, I want everybody to be able to look to the past because technically those responses were from 2017, but kind of look inwardly like, okay, well, we're on the same team. We have this, we're having the same issues and struggles. And then turn that to look toward the future and to say in the, what are we going to do about it? We need to continue talking to each other, sharing resources, making resources, publishing, you know, share stories of success, share the lessons learned from maybe challenges that were not so much a success. And rather than stay in our little pigeonhole, you know, share those ideas, whether it's through an NSGC avenue, through a a committee, through a a peer-reviewed article, continue sharing ideas so that we can kind of push forward, push forward, push forward. Did you feel that there were things that this data set and the responses didn't get to address fully that you're you're recognizing now regarding credentialing or billing or access to service delivery models or access to genetic counseling? Sure, sure. Like I said, you know, of course there's a delay in publishing and it's very interesting to look at things. You know, I looked back at it earlier or, you know, these are things that folks thought were really unique service delivery models. And I look at the landscape today and it's what everybody's doing. We're not quite, you know, the things that we thought were up and coming are becoming more of the norm. And I like to see that pushing and I want to see that pushing forward. I do think that the responses did not quite explore as much the things like the federal bill. And that's kind of coming from my own personal experience. The more I have been doing, the more I have realized what an impact that will have. And we didn't even mention earlier, there's several things in the article that do talk about licensure, the challenges of multi-state licensure, the challenges of physician multi-state licensure. I mean, all of those things. I know I've worked with Brian on some credentialing things. I think all those aspects will continue to push us forward, like Brian said, kind of to establish our profession's place in medicine. I still feel like we're in that like teenager phase, I guess. (laughs) So how might state or national licensure impact access to genetic counseling services? I know we talk about it quite a bit in regards to billing and credentialing, but could either of you speak to a little bit more about what other roles state or national licensure could play in that expansion? There are two different things to really start. There are many states that have licensure. Some of the benefits that those states see is just increased recognition from payers. When you're talking to insurance companies, a lot of them base how they have conversations around state law. Makes sense, right? But nationally, what would really change beyond just recognition from Medicare is the trickle-down effect that that would have across the whole field, really. When we think about Medicare, we really think about a specific population that has insurance through that program, but we don't think about all the other insurers and payers that really base their programs on everything that Medicare does. And I think the VA is a great example as we look at what TRICARE does. There's no regulations that says that TRICARE can't have things that Medicare doesn't do because it is slightly different populations that are being defined, but they traditionally follow Medicare regulations. And so what's available even to patients as far as services, not just genetic counseling, but what um, practitioners are able to do is so important. And then there's recognition of our field across those different barriers, right? For many payers, they don't 
know what a genetic counselor is despite our advocacy efforts. And I think that that really hampers conversations, not just about payment, but also about recognition for hospitals. Being able to hire new genetic counselors can be more challenging because they're not recognized by payers. So the trickle-down effect is enormous. Yeah, Brian, when you're mentioning recognition, it makes me think of value. I'm in a state without licensure, but the more we have explored how to maybe push the bounds and do clinic different ways, I actually think the federal bill will have a larger impact. I think the federal bill will enable my state to consider licensure and will impact institutional policies, which will reflect credentialing and things like that, and all the payer things that you mentioned. But I do feel like there's a certain aspect of that value, just as, you know, somebody knows what I am, what I do, they appreciate it, you know, across the board, across the levels. My goodness, if we're able to have that nationally, that speaks volumes. And I'm not saying that all the providers in a state with licensure know what a genetic counselor is and does, you know, that's just continuing to push the bounds to mature the field. But that value that you don't really place a dollar amount to means something to genetic counselors. It means something to me. It makes a difference in my job satisfaction, my work life. I couldn't agree more, Emily. And I, I always think of it like this. My partner makes fun of genetic counselors because instead of an appreciation day, we have an awareness day. And he always says, I'm very aware of you. <laughs> I'm like, thank you. But I think we underestimate the impact that a federal bill would have just on awareness, because we're talking about awareness from people that we often don't interact with it all on our day-to-day basis. People at insurance companies, the billing people at our own institutions that are really behind the scenes, but making our patient experiences flow. And it even has the effect of impacting the laboratories and being able to have conversations with hospitals as they often do about genetic counseling and genetic testing services. And so I think there's a huge awareness component outside of billing that would also be of major impact to our field. So what advice would either of you have for genetic counselors that are are looking to advocate for this recognition, this value to be placed upon the title at different levels, whether that be institutional, state, or, or national? The advocacy is just kind of jump in and get involved to whatever degree that you are comfortable or are able. Obviously, we're all time strapped and that definitely came up in the paper. Use the resources available. Use your colleagues. NSGC has a lot of information on the website, but I think there are a lot of resources that are, you know, just reach out to somebody send an email, make a phone call. Like we talked earlier, you know, continue those conversations, keep talking. But I know for me personally, I used to want to very much head in the sand on anything billing that doesn't affect me. I don't really understand or know much about it. I do hope the new GC grads are getting a little bit of more billing exposure in their training. It's like this foreign lingo and jargon, but we are lifelong learners. We can do it. You just need to connect to the right people, ask the right questions, keep learning. There's resources. Brian and I put together a a credentialing online course that we made available free to all the membership. Really, the reason I'm sitting here talking to you guys today is because I stepped out and volunteered for a committee. So this is my plug for step out there and volunteer. You may not end up doing whatever you think that you will be doing, but you will be pleasantly surprised with the people you meet, with the projects you work on. You know, you never know where that work may lead. As always, I agree with Emily. (laughs) If I was going to summarize it as a single piece of advice, regardless of where you're at in your career, 
learn to build a business case. And there's a bunch of different ways you can do that. You can join, volunteer for the ASD committee. They have a special business case group, but they've also put out a bunch of resources for people that are good at self-learning. The reason learning to build a business case is critical is genetic counselors are already good with people. We have such great skills to talk to our patients, but what we often lack is the skills needed to communicate with administrations who speak at a slightly different volume or, or, or level than what we're used to. And maybe the conversation is more focused on finances at someone's institution, or maybe it's more focused on logistics. They need to know numbers versus us just telling them what would work best for our patients. And so I think one of the best things a genetic counselor can do in their career is really learn how to build a business case so that if they're in leadership or if they're at their own hospital, they really know how to talk to their leaders to get what they need for their patients. And there's a ton of resources through NSGC to do that. And ASD is a great way to start. Have either of you had those conversations with the administration at your institution to discuss things like billing and what successes have you had? What things have you learned from those experiences? I've gone from a no bill situation to a billing situation. So when I joined my hospital, we didn't bill. It was beautiful. Every patient we saw, we just didn't charge them. And I thought that life was great. And then they told us that that needed to change. And I thought my world was ending. I had all the dark fears that anyone may have. I thought that this was them telling us that they're just going to sunset the program, that eventually they're just going to get rid of all of genetics. None of that happened. And we have switched to billing. Turns out patients expect to be billed for consultations. Not nearly as traumatizing for them as it, I think, was for us. But to your point about having those business case conversations, one of the things that we really did when we were so terrified of going to billing was we advocated with our institution to set the price point for our genetic counseling services. So on that Medicare population, it was about 30% of our practice. And we were like, if this is too unaffordable for people to pay out of pocket, we feel like we're going to do a real disservice. And so we built a business case, brought it to administration, and they said, yes, we will set the cost for services at what you guys are recommending. And it was just a really rewarding process to have done this research, to put this forward to our institution and have them listen and say, okay, that's very reasonable. Thank you for, for letting us know as we implement this. Let's do it that way. Well, it's nice to hear you're encouraging folks to learn to build a business case. And it's nice to hear if you do the work and, and put it out there, that it, it may just be that, yes, this is all the right evidence. Yes, we agree. I had a different experience with breaking through some barriers, not billing related, but just years ago and setting up telehealth clinics, we continued to face the barrier of setting up labs. And I don't know about you guys, but genetic counseling doesn't really work without labs. <laughs> I was very frustrated in that this was something that was possible, but institutionally made to appear not possible, you know, and those barriers at that level. And so as I gathered folks, tried to gather the right voices, everybody sit down at the table. We had several difficult meetings with several negative Nancy's constantly know here's the reason why. And I just want to encourage folks, we had a successful outcome at the end. And I want to encourage folks that we do have, I guess, maybe not always the training Brian mentions of, of speaking at that very high administrative level, but we are trained in our counseling skills and those can apply to more than just patients. Use those. I have sat in several challenging meetings, setting up these labs, other challenging administrative type meetings. Use your counseling skills. 
some of that is just, let me summarize from this person and, you know, facilitate it over to this person and really lean on those skills that you already have, because that will do you a lot of good. And, you know, I can't speak to that enough. I also think it's very important to maintain the focus on the patients and that this is all for the good of the patients. It is not to advance anybody or be doing more or my goodness, making any more money. And it's not about the negatives of, well, we can't do that because that would require me to feel uncomfortable or do a little bit more work. But really we all need to have the common goal of for the good of the patients. And I think getting everybody to that common ground really does help. So Emily, it sounds like you've done some of the legwork on the ground to institute some of those alternative service delivery models, like a telemedicine or a telehealth clinic. What advice would you have to other genetic counselors that might be trying to have those conversations now to implement those sorts of strategies? I feel that most clinics have switched to some of these alternative service delivery models due to the COVID-19 pandemic. But what might you say to someone now that's trying to institute some of that at their own hospital or, or practice? Sure, sure. It's really been nice to kind of see from COVID-19, so many barriers come down or things that used to would have taken so long. And all of a sudden, look what we can do. I hope a lot of that stuff really does stick around. I think if you're looking at starting a new model, you've really got to sit down and think through, first of all, kind of form your core team of who are going to be the advocates for the champion, who's on your side, who's on your team. Go ahead and identify the ones who are going to be barriers to you. And then just think through, work through process the entire way. Walk through from the time of referral to the time of how do you get somebody appointed? Yes. How do you see them? You know, a telehealth visit, how does that work? You know, all the way to the end, the follow-up, the last apps, how do you end results, things like that, to think about how the changed model will impact at each step along the way. But then I would also say to explore what is available to you, right? We have a wonderful center for telehealth at my institution. So it was not me setting up, you know, let me write a grant and buy a cart and set up the technology and all this stuff. You know, there are probably resources within your organization that you can lean on for different pieces of the puzzle, but it may be you putting the whole thing together. And it's going to look different everywhere. There's not a cookie cutter, but I think also reach out to folks. People have reached out to me before. I've reached out to colleagues, folks that, you know, which kind of comes back to all of that, you know, sharing ideas. I all of a sudden had the winds changed and wanted to start billing or was forced to that or some of my institutional things changed. I would reach out to Brian and I would ask him some questions. And we have a relationship that was formed through being in a committee together. As we learned in grad school, genetic counseling is a small field be professional always and carry those professional relationships with you. Brian, do you have any thoughts on how these alternative service delivery models in their implementation of them may have changed since the COVID-19 pandemic and how that sort of upended a lot of these conversations as, as Emily was alluding to? It has to have, right? I mean, I remember when we started doing telehealth and we would make patients come into an office in Texas, it was just 100 miles away from our office. And, and that worked for them because they didn't want to drive 100 miles. But I can't imagine doing that now with COVID when today we have 
what's equivalent to Zoom and the patient can stay right at home. And so I think one of the biggest things and pieces of advice is look at your technology options. So many of us are content to just kind of use what we're currently using and only use new things when the hospital or administration tells us to. But take a look. If you have access to the Microsoft suite, there are probably 30 different apps you didn't know you had access to that do really cool things. I think we're <laughs> doing this podcast is such a great example of a lot of people still aren't familiar with podcasts, what do they do or what that technology is. And one of the things that if you're looking at service delivery, look at technology. This is an example of how we're using technology to advance the field. So start there. I also say, look at what's working for other institutions. The NSGC generally will make the uh, posters available even after the conference. Go and look at the posters every year. There's so many thoughtful genetic counselors trying new things out and you should try them too and see what works for you. My biggest piece of advice is measure everything. Most people have access to software, whether or not it's Excel or Red cap, something that you can use to measure what you're doing, because sometimes something seems like the best idea in the world. But if you look back at it on paper, you made no difference. It just felt like you were doing better. And we did that with one of our own service delivery models. We thought this is going great. And then we looked back at it on paper and there was no change in, in the outcome we were trying to, to make a difference. In. And it felt great. It felt great to offer a different service delivery model, but ultimately it ended up being a lot of work and we had to evaluate. Was that the value we were trying to bring to our patient care? Do either of you have any examples within your own professional careers or in others that you know through the field that have had success implementing service delivery models other than standalone like telemedicine service? Have there been any other examples that you've had recently or heard of recently that have been successful? We've definitely tried several different delivery models at my hospital. One that we're currently trialing, so I don't know if it's successful or not, is using chatbots to initially reach out to patients and help determine if they are good candidates for genetic counseling and testing. And that's really interesting because using a chatbot allows us to catch a much broader range of patients than we would typically have access to. These aren't patients that are we're receiving referrals for. They're patients just visiting community clinics that are getting screened. I think that's really cool technology, but something that required a lot of logistics to set up. Probably one that I can definitely say was successful, but that we're kind of still figuring out is in community settings, particularly hospitals that have limited funding and budget, there's a real drive to just want to serve those patients with the highest quality care possible. But with the limited resources we have, that often means thinking about service delivery from a, a different standpoint. And one of the things that I've loved seeing is all the group counseling that's being done. Can we harness the education section of the jet counseling visit, the parts that are often repeated and can be done in a more rote way, and then provide patients with an individualized session one-on-one -on -one for a shorter period of time. And we have done that pretty successfully at a community clinic by showing an educational video and then providing patients with a shorter one-on-one -on -one session with the genetic counselor to address individual questions as they've had. But during a pandemic, showing people a video <laughs> in a confined space, not so great. So what we're working through right now is can they be roomed in a particular room and then watch it on the screen? Well, the computers didn't have speakers. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's really fun to work on these things. But sometimes I think that we forget just all the little logistical details, but they, they can be worked out and we'll get there. Love that. That's why I said walk through every aspect of the visit, even down to those little details. 
I guess a couple of things successful. This is something that should have been in place a very long time ago, but we have only just recently gotten the ability to have language interpretation as part of our telehealth visits. That is something that I was able to have a seat at a larger meeting with higher administrative people. And I advocated for it like nonstop. My mom taught me squeaky wheel gets the grease and I would not stop beating that drum and sharing. This is unfair patient care. We cannot schedule any of these patients at any of our distant sites. They're usually of lower socioeconomic status, but we're forcing them to come here. It's absolutely not a fair thing. And ultimately it came down to expansion of a contract. And of course, ultimately came down to money, not something that was technologically impossible to do, but I am proud to say that now that is available. And because of that advocacy, now that is institution-wide, right? So it's not just with genetics, that's for anybody to be able to use. I'm proud to say that was a, a success. We also, I guess in the pre-COVID era, it felt very new and innovative, but we have always had a difficult time recruiting to Mississippi into our institution. And so we actually have hired a remote genetic counselor and a remote geneticist. They work completely out of state. They're in different time zones from me, which is lots of fun. They are able to expand access, the number of patients that we can see by having those additional providers. And that's been something with hurdles and technology and all the things that go with that, but has been a very successful project, you know, additional colleagues, folks that I get to work with on a regular basis. There are so many opportunities available to genetic counselors to expand themselves and expand access in ways that we might not think about, like you were saying, Emily, by using interpretive services and giving patients that due respect of discussing these topics in their given language. Absolutely. You know, in thinking through this, there, there's not a cookie cutter answer. And if you find something that works, it doesn't mean that that is the one direction to continue going and expand that out as big as possible. I like to describe it kind of a, a patchwork quilt. I think it takes several solutions. There's no one thing that's going to get everybody or increase all the access. Just like licensure is not the final answer. The federal bill is going to have a huge impact. That's not the final answer either. It takes all of it working together. I can see as we think about service delivery models across disciplines, how specific things might work better for one discipline rather than another, and also regionality as well. There are different parts of this country where access is limited more by physical distance rather than other barriers to care. So I can definitely see how some of these models might be tailored and need to be tailored to a specific center. Absolutely. And you know your area and your issues best, and you know your local resources best, and will be able to help formulate that solution to the best that you can. That's why there's no such thing as a, an NSGC consultant to fly in. They're going to fix all your problems. They're going to leave. That doesn't work. My practice is very different from Brian's and we have different solutions. At the end of this conversation, we've talked a lot about some of the resources that genetic counselors might be able to use to help have these conversations and continue these efforts. What are some of your favorite resources, things that you rely on when you're discussing these things? Emily and I are biased <laughs> because we were members of the ASD. And I, I do think that it's a fantastic resource. I think even just volunteering with the Access and Service Delivery Committee, in case you're not familiar, it does so much more than just service delivery model. They're also in charge of NSGC's volunteers for coding and credentialing. So there's a lot of billing work, both on kind of the hospital side, but also billing for services like particular testing. They include the licensure subcommittee and the business 
case, subcommittee. So everything that we've talked about today is really all housed in the NSGC ASD committee. So if this is of interest to you, really encourage people to volunteer, but also check out the NSGC website. The committee is constantly pumping out resources like the webinar Emily alluded to earlier on coding and credentialing, but there's also just web pages and documents specifically about these different topics. Yeah, I feel like there's as much little or big that you have the bandwidth for the time for to kind of dip your toe into. You know, I just saw the email come through with the business case white paper and I'm working through that. I'm proud to see that that happened, that summit happened. Things are are moving forward. And, you know, I will echo again, kind of that volunteering, just from being around those conversations and meeting those individuals and hearing expertise, hearing from individuals, Ryan, like you said, in, in different regions and in different specialties, and just kind of getting out of your own little space, that definitely taught me a lot. It's not a class you can sign up for. Get in there and, and you will learn. I'd say a few other tangibles for everyone is A lot of institutions will have government relations department or person who helps with things. So if you're talking about licensure at your institution, if you're looking at things like how it relates to your state, or maybe you're doing telehealth services and you want to know what you can and cannot do with other states. Oftentimes there's a government relations person or team at your institution you can talk to. There's almost always also a payer relations, someone who's in charge of getting the payers to pay where you're working, because that is very important to employers. Don't let money be a dirty word for you in these conversations. As you're having these conversations with your own administrations, make sure that you're using your genetic counseling skills and positioning. Money is value. And genetic counselors love using the word value, but then hate the word money. But to your employer, (laughs) money is value. And so I think it's really important for us to to acknowledge that as we have those conversations with them. It's not a dirty word in, in the business or health world. Tough love coming from Brian today. I love it. Uh, just rip that bandaid off. And I will, I guess, also add, you know, your institution should have some type of compliance office. I know we have kind of started those conversations with our compliance office as far as perhaps trying to untether from physicians or push our autonomy. That's got to be a conversation that goes through compliance as well. Gosh, I love it, Brian. I feel like I'm learning just from doing this podcast. I love spending time with you, Emily. Thank you both so much for your enthusiasm and your insights. Everyone should go and read this paper in the Journal of Genetic Counseling. Absorb it because it's important to all of us. So thank you. Thank you both so, so much. Thanks for having us. Thanks again. To read Emily and her team's full article in the Journal of Genetic Counseling, visit nsgc.org forward slash Journal of Genetic Counseling. And for further reading, you can find many of the resources mentioned on today's call at nsgc.org forward slash members forward slash healthcare dash business dash resources, or you can reach out directly to the ASD committee. That concludes this month's episode of the NSGC podcast series. Thank you as always to our speakers and special thanks to ASD committee leaders, Lauren Ryan, Kendra Shaw, Shivani Nazareth, and Jennifer Trotter for suggesting this topic and helping make this episode happen. This recording is produced by the National Society of Genetic Counselors. I'm your host, Naomi Wagner, and we'll see you next time.